Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is Series 4, Episode 10, The Hero of Mirth. This episode is almost up to date. It's a rare treat for a history podcaster. The focus on history means that, well, you're not really talking much about current affairs, and the fact that it's a podcast means that if you were talking about current affairs, they won't be so current when someone downloads that episode a year or two later on. But our next two episodes are almost an exception. Because sometime over the next couple of weeks, a book is going to come out by Upinda Singh. Upinda Singh is the head of history at the University of Delhi. She's the author of my favourite introduction to ancient Indian history. So I've already asked my librarian to order me a copy and I'm going to snatch it up as soon as it arrives. The book is about ancient Indian political violence. It's called Political Violence in Ancient India. In honour of the publication, I thought we'd take a couple of episodes to look at ancient Indian warfare. Now, I know a lot of people love military history. We haven't really done that much. I suppose I think that there's probably too much out there already. But we have been following the life of Harsha, the great emperor of India. And a very large chunk of his life seems to have been spent either planning for wars or fighting them. So over the next two episodes, we're going to be following Harsha. In this episode, we'll be with him as he plans for a war. We're going to listen to his advisers debate over whether to go to war at all, and if so, how to fight. Next episode, we're going to go out with Harsha on campaign. We're going to see the troops. We're going to prepare the troops for battle. It was actually the king's job in his time to go out and personally see that all his troops were ready to fight. Ready? Let's go. Yesterday, I was chatting to some Indian students, and the conversation turned to history. It seems to turn to history a lot when I'm around. One of them told me that when they were in school, they'd been taught a lot about Ashoka's Ahimsa, meaning non-violence, roughly. The other told me that all they remember from history class in school is a long list of heroic kings waging great battles. There's something about that conversation that's emblematic, that's a feature of something that's fairly widespread. On the one hand, people often think of ancient Indians as basically non-violent. And on the other hand, people often think of ancient Indian history as just a, a series of, of wars. And both pictures are, are odd. The student who told me they focused on Ashoka's Ahimsa, his non-violence, wasn't alone. Quite a lot of ancient Indian history seems to focus on Buddha and Ashoka. And even the symbol of modern-day India unites the two. Those three lines that you can find on every single Indian coin and note and every single Indian government document, those are lines from a monument built by Ashoka for the Buddhist community. And Ashoka is in some sense non-violent. But as far as I can remember, he doesn't mention Ahimsa. I don't speak Prakrit, so I can't be sure. But he doesn't talk about it, and he doesn't exactly live the life of Ahimsa either. He eats meat. He's not a vegetarian. He believes in capital punishment. He threatens to burn down the forest to kill the forest people. 
And don't get me wrong, ahimsa, non-violence, is a concept from ancient India. It's been changed a bit in the modern day, but it's there. And Ashoka was, in a certain sense, against violence. But the story just isn't quite as simple and straightforward as students were told. And the other student's picture, the picture of ancient India as a series of noble kings waging great battles, well, that's even more obviously wrong. I mean, apart from anything else, it must be a gross exaggeration. Most people aren't soldiers, including ancient Indians. And even for soldiers, most of your life is going to be waiting around between battles and living everyday mundanity, not waging war. The series of battles view about Indian history is wrong for a more interesting reason, though. First, there's that fact that ancient India did actually have these large traditions of non-violence, more perhaps than anywhere else in the world. People in ancient India wanted to avoid war and bloodshed. And then there's this struggle in ancient India between these two ideals of the warrior king. In the familiar story, we just have a sequence of noble, heroic warriors. But back in ancient India, people were more torn and confused about how a warrior king should act. On the one hand, ancient Indians had this ideal of the noble hero king who fights honestly, nobly. The noble hero king will tell you he's going to hit you, then he'll hit you really hard, and then he'll help you back up onto your feet. On the other hand, ancient Indians had this ideal of the the crafty, cunning king. He gets what he wants with cunning and insight. He'll tell you that you're the best of friends, then he'll sneak around behind you, and by the time you've pulled your trousers back up, he's already halfway home with everything you own. Those two ancient Indian ideals of how a warrior king should act, they kind of work as two actors wrestling on a stage. Sometimes the noble hero king is front of stage. But a century later, the cunning crafty king has taken the fore. And when Harsha comes around, it seems to be one of those stages of transition. It seems to be that the heroic king has been at the front of stage, has had prominence for a long time, but now he seems to be fading away. And a lot of people at Harsha's time are, are struggling with this. They're struggling to work out how to reconcile these two apparently conflicting ideals. And they're coming up with some brand new ways of looking at warrior kings. And in fact, looking at war altogether. So what we're going to do is listen in whilst Harsha talks to his advisors as they wrestle between these two ideals and trying to find a third middle path. We're going to listen to them talk about whether they should go to war at all and also about how to run the campaign. But this debate about what makes a good warrior king didn't just happen in the audience chambers of the king. It also happened out in the public sphere. So we're going to go and read some popular fiction from the time some romantic tales of princes, and we'll find that they're also wrestling. What should a prince or a king be like if he's a hero? So here we are with Harsha, as he strides into his assembly hall, ready to meet with his advisors. They gather round. They're going to decide whether to go to war. And they start dispensing their advice, start prattling on, as advisers do, about what the victorious king would do, what kind of chap he is, 
whether he wears his socks up to the heel or lets it sink down. Well, okay, not the last one. The first group of advisors offer some very familiar advice. It's familiar because it's advice that's been given to Indian kings for almost a thousand years. In harshest time, the emperor who everyone looked up to was Chandragupta Maurya, the founder of the Mauryan dynasty. He had started with absolutely nothing. He was abandoned by his parents and left in a jar by the side of the road. And he ended up with an empire that covered almost all of India, and in fact parts outside of India too. And he managed to do all of that with the help of his advisor. His advisor was called Kautilya, which means crookedness. And crookedness's advice to the emperor must have been really amazing to get him that far in life. And fortunately, both for Harsha and for us, crookedness wrote down his advice in a book, which survived the long centuries, and Harsha almost certainly read it. Now, crookedness's book, The Art of Shastra, has some uh, brilliant ideas that everyone thinks is great. The most famous of these is the mandala. The idea of the mandala is that uh, around your kingdom is a ring of enemies, and around them is a ring of friends, because your enemies' enemies are your friends. So what you want to do is find an enemy, go the other side, find a friend, make an alliance with them, and then you'll have your enemy surrounded. And in Harsha's time, at least, this was well known and widely used. In fact, many of Harsha's contemporaries and Harsha himself followed exactly this strategy almost to the letter. They went, they found an enemy, they went to the other side to find a friend, and they allied with them and they tried to ring-fence their enemies in, putting old crookedness's words into action, as in fact probably hadn't happened in previous parts of history in India. But... Crookedness had other advice, advice that many ancient Indians thought was not so good. And the advisors would have started giving this advice to Harsha. And a lot of that advice would strike even our ears as pretty cynical. Make an alliance and intentionally break it almost as soon as it's made, if it helps you win. Use spies, use a bunch of tricks to deceive the enemy king. This advice, in fact, is so old that we've already spent a couple of episodes on it back in season one of this podcast. Now, these advisors are advocating what in ancient times was called crooked war, ruthless crooked war, what people in the West might call Machiavellian. The label crooked war is actually much older than crookedness, the advisor who argued for it. And the two Sanskrit words for crookedness and crooked war are different, but they have the same root. Once those crooked war advisors have done telling you to be a cunning steward, the next group of advisors are going to step in. These advisors follow the law books, like the Manusmriti. And they say that kings should never wage a crooked war, at least not against other Indian kings. Instead, Indian kings should engage in dharmic war. Heroic war is what I'm going to call it. Now, heroic war still involves a good deal of blood scattered over the floor, even more perhaps than Crooked War does, but this blood is spilt in an honourable way. Kings, say these advisers, should never trick anyone. It doesn't matter what your army is like. Even if you're facing a stronger opponent, don't resort to cheap tricks. That brings you down. 
It doesn't matter, in fact, if your opponent lacks honour and tries cheap tricks on you, you don't do it to them. If you think your ally is going to betray you, you don't betray him. You stay faithful and you just put on your armour and find a way to overcome that stab in the back. That is the way to please God. That is the way to get to heaven. Unlike the advocates of crooked war, the advocates of heroic war have got a lot of rules of law. You can't just do what you want. You can't just do whatever you need to win. In fact, there's an awful lot that you can't do. Now, some of the rules are just about being heroic and not sneaky. All attacks should be in the open, so you can't march at night, you can't attack at night. You must never camouflage your camp or or hide what you're doing in any way. And this goes right down to your weapons. You've got to use honest, straightforward weapons, swords, spears. Don't use poison weapons, don't use fire arrows, don't use that sort of thing. Or there's the rule that a king must never retreat from battle. Most obviously heroic in that sense. Quite a lot of these rules of law, though, seem exceptionally humane. If you have your enemies surrounded, well, effectively, they surrender to you. You can't kill them. If they've turned their back, if they're running away, again, effectively, they surrender. Don't chase them down and hack them in the back. If they go up to you with their hands folded and unduly, you can't kill them. If they're unarmed, you can't kill them. If they sit down or if they call for your mercy, then you have to let them live. There are also some rules which I really don't understand. And these seem to have been added in more recent years, probably after Manu, later Gupta era. For example, there seems to have been this rule of symmetrical warfare in a straightforward literal sense. So your elephants have to be fighting their elephants. Your infantry have to be fighting the enemy infantry. Your horsemen have to be fighting the enemy horsemen. As if fighting someone with a different training is an unfair advantage. Most of all, though, there are rules which will talk about what you must do when you win. What your aim must be when you set out. Those crooked war guys, they'll tell you that you should go to war whenever you like, provided you can get what you want. But the heroic war guys, they say that you have to go to war not to win a new territory, not to gain wealth, but pretty much just for the glory. That's a simplification in some ways, but it's roughly the idea. So once you've won the battle, go and find that king that you've beaten. Put him right back on his throne. Now, he doesn't get exactly back where he was. He has to pay some tribute, and every once in a while he has to come. You know, you're standing next to him, and he goes and makes a nice close inspection of your toenails, if you get my meaning. But nonetheless, you give the king back his kingdom. The idea is that you beat all of the kings of India one by one until you have a series of little kings under you and you have control of all of India and you've become the universal conqueror. And that, these advisors tell you, is the sort of war kings must fight against other kings. Or at least against other Indian kings. Let's be realistic, this sort of nicety is wasted on the Greeks and those other foreigners. Now, all of the advice that Harsh has heard so far has been between a few hundred and a thousand years old. Old, old news. But then, after them, another group of advisers might have spoken up. Around Harsh's time, as we said, people were trying to come up with a new way of looking at warfare. 
with neither the dishonourableness of crooked war nor the pig-headedness of heroic war. Sometime a little bit after Harsha, these ideas were written down in a book called the Nitisara, which I'm going to translate as The Essence of Politics. It's a pretty big book talking about an awful lot of things, about how to run the state, diplomacy, and a bunch of other non-war political stuff. Quite a lot of that is copied straight out of that old book written by Crookedness, the Artashastra. But the last few chapters of this new book are about warfare. And there, it's a breath of fresh air. The first thing about these new ideas is they're far more practical, informed by real-world stuff. The ideas in Crookedness and in Manu, well, they just seem so theoretical. They seem like they're written by someone who pretty much hasn't gone to war or hasn't done it much. But the new ideas, they so obviously come from tried and tested experience. Either the author was an experienced general or he spoke to an awful lot of soldiers. There's nitty-gritty details like how many people you need to take down an elephant, how far apart to space people. That sort of thing. The mundane practicalities. In fact, much of the book just focuses on mundane practicalities. Things that seem straightforward, but end up making the difference between victory and defeat. The second thing about the new ideas, which is so refreshing, is that the ethics is really straightforward and comfortable. The ideas clearly prioritise protecting lives. The advice is to make sure you go for go to war for a really good reason. Don't be hasty. Think about everything. Try and avoid war at almost any cost. And once you're at war, seriously consider whether crooked strategies will help you save lives. A bit of trickery and deceit will often mean there's less bloodshed. And that, according to the new ideas, is the most important thing. So, in a sense, these new ideas mix in the extremes of heroic war and crooked war. It's a new approach to warfare, and in that book, it's called Shining War, sometimes translated as Open War. All of these translations are mine, by the way, and there's some good reason behind them, but the reasons are frankly too boring to bother talking about. The label Shining War was anyway used earlier by Manu, but in the new book, it was introduced as a new idea. Go to war only for the most honourable reasons, but once you're at war, pull whatever tricks you need to save lives. War for heroic reasons, waged in crooked ways. Enough of these abstractions, let's get down to some details. The advocates of the shining war approach start to offer harsher their advice. Those other guys, They've been too quick to admit that you should go to war at all. Let's slow things right down. There are at least three things to consider, three questions to answer before we can say it's a good idea to go to war. First, Harsha, why are you going to war? Is it because somebody insulted you? For revenge isn't a good enough reason for war. The enemy has to deserve punishment. Is it because you fell in love with someone's daughter? and you want to carry her off, look, don't put the army on the line over a woman. Is it for glory? Is it to become the universal conqueror? And that's just a, a fanciful idea. That's not the business of real practical kings. Make sure, if you go to war, you're getting something that's useful to your people. Remember, that's your job. Get some new land, get some new allies, get wealth, get something that makes you a better king. Here's how it is, Harsha. India is like a lake. 
Don't be like the snake, striking wherever you sense a threat. Instead, be like the reeds, bending in the wind. It's the reeds that cover the lake with their glorious flowers, and it's the snake who has to hide away in the reeds. Second question. Look, Harsha, even if you've got a good reason uh, to go to war, make sure you can do it without losing your kingdom. Whilst you're away at war, there will be dangers, dangers from outside attackers and dangers from within. And actually, it's the dangers from within which are often the worst. So you're going to need to do a lot of work making sure your kingdom is running well before you seriously consider leaving. Make sure, number one, that your people are happy. In particular, think about the main occupations, agriculture, trade, cattle. They've got to be thriving. Hands full with money are unlikely to pick up weapons and start a civil war against you. And then there are the posher kind of threats. Provincial governors, priests, ministers, not to mention members of your own family. And of course, forest kings and other future kings in your area. They are in a way more dangerous than the mass of people. If the mass of people are unhappy, you're going to know about it pretty soon. You'll have protesters outside the palace gates. But if your princes are unhappy, they're going to smile at you. They won't say a word until one day you turn up and you find them on your throne and their knife in your throat. All of those posh guys need to be happy and loyal and nice. So reward them, chastise them, turn one of your internal enemies against another, do whatever you have to. Harsha, no matter how powerful, hasty kings always come to ruin. But a weak king, even a weak king, can conquer if only he has enough self-restraint. The third question, the third challenge for Harsha, was even if you've got a good goal, and even if you can achieve it without losing your kingdom, are you sure that war is the only way to get what you want? Unlike the other advisors, these advisors who focus on the shining war say it over and over. Make sure all other avenues have been tried and found wanting. Check out every diplomatic option you can. Every peaceful attempt to resolve a problem, to get what you want, must have been tried and failed. All attempts to pay the enemy off or trick them into giving up. Advisors who follow the shining war way almost never recommend going to war. And this new advice has behind it a new picture of what war is like. The proponents of the crooked war and the heroic war said there were different kinds of war, and some of those were bad and others were good. So, for example, according to crookedness, there are warriors who are driven by virtue, warriors who are driven by greed, and warriors who are driven by demons. But according to these new proponents of shining war, there are no good types of war. All war is inherently bad. It is to be avoided whenever possible. And when it is undertaken, just try to make sure it destroys as few lives as possible. The struggle of ideals isn't found just in the audience chamber of kings. It's also outside of that, in leisure time, beyond the palace gates. 
During our period, Harsh's time, romances were written, romances about warriors and princes saving princesses and traitorous kings and sorcerers and all that sort of thing. But the heroes of these romances aren't always exactly as you might expect, especially for somewhere like ancient India. I mean, for one thing, the heroes of these romances often get intimate with other people's wives, sometimes very explicitly so. Not exactly most people's picture of ancient Indian values. And the romances differ from how you might expect in another way too. The heroes are very often tricksters, con men. They get what they want, not by being straightforward and honest and noble, but being cunning. And in the stories, you can actually see that tension. Is this the way that warrior kings should live? Is this noble? Is this dutiful? The most famous of these romances is the story of the Ten Princes. In fact, we introduced it all the way back in the very first episode of this series, the introduction one. There we introduced the framework of the Ten Princes. It's all long and convoluted and complicated and I won't repeat it here, but to cut a long story short, ten princes grow up together, each go off to have their own adventures, and then they come back and they meet again. And the story of the ten princes is the story as each of them narrates their own tale, their own adventure. Because these stories are so great, I thought we'd have one or two to break up the solemn advice with a bit of ancient flippantry. One of the princes told the following story. He had been travelling in the forest, and he hadn't found a village to sleep in, so he found a tree with its branches hanging long over, picked up some leaves, he assembled them round the trunk, he lay down, and he fell asleep. In the middle of the night, he woke up. But he wasn't on leaves any longer, in that knot from the, the, the tree roots wasn't under his back anymore. Instead, there was a soft bed. He opened his eyes, he looked up, and he saw this beautiful canopy in the gloom. As his eyes adjusted, he started to see that he was surrounded by women sleeping in beds. One of them looked exceptionally beautiful. He watched her as her chest went up and down with her breath. There was slight perspiration on her forehead with the heat of the night. He went over to look at her. After a while, she woke. She looked at him, alarmed, but she didn't say anything. Eventually, she went back to sleep, and he returned to his bed and went back to sleep too. He woke up in the morning, and he was back under the tree, with the hard knot of the root beneath him. Had it all been a dream? But it seemed so vivid. He needed to know, did that woman exist? And soon he discovered that she did. Although he discovered it in a rather odd way. You see, this prince's mother had abandoned his father, and she had been cursed to become a spirit for it. The curse had lasted one year. And she had just been going to lift her curse when she happened to go through the forest and walk past her son, hiding under the tree. Oh, that's not a good place to be, thought she. Picked him up and put him in the palace of Shravasti, which is a bit north of modern Lucknow to keep him safe while she went off to lift the curse. She met him when he woke up, told him the story. Now, if it were you or me, I think 
that if our mother came up to us and said, oh, I've been cursed uh, and uh, I saw you and I picked you up and I flew you to Shavasti and I kept you there for the night, we would probably think we were still dreaming. But the prince was like, yeah, okay, so she really does exist then. And he set off to find the woman he had seen. On his journey, he went through a village. And the villagers were having a bit of a festival. As often in these villages, there was a cockfight. A bunch of men gathered round two cockerels fighting one another. But it was a silly fight, thought the prince, because one of the cocks was obviously a much better breed than the other. He nudged an old Brahmin who was sitting next to him. He said, isn't this a stupid fight? You can clearly tell who's going to win. Shh, said the Brahmin. Don't tell them. They're idiots. They don't know. Come, sit here. The prince went to sit by the old Brahmin. The cocks fought and, naturally enough, the better cock won. Most of the villagers were annoyed, but the Brahmin stood up, proudly picked up the winning cock, his cock, and accepted the prize money. After that, the Brahmin and the prince got to talking, and they found they had a surprising amount in common. In fact, the prince stayed there for a while in the Brahmin's house and they became close friends. After a few days, the prince wanted to go off towards the princess and so he left his friend the Brahmin and his parting words were to the prince, anything I can do to help, just let me know. The prince carried on on his long journey to the north. One day, he sat by the roadside, tired and panting. Along came a woman. She was carrying a big square thing. What's that? She turned it round and he saw it was a painting. Even more, it was a painting of him. And then she saw this look of bewilderment cross her face and excitement. She looked at him, but she was too shy to say anything. So the prince said, come on, we're in public. Don't worry. Come and sit down next to me. Let's talk. They started talking, just chatting about the day. But still, she was too shy to say anything about the painting, even though right in front of her was this painting which exactly matched his features. The prince worked out what had gone on. The woman he'd seen that night, must have been the princess, had remembered his face, painted it, and told her servants to go around and look for this man. It's a rather odd thing to do if you think about it. You wake up in the night, see a face, paint it, try and find the chap. Anyway... How to broach the topic with this woman. This woman was clearly the princess's servant, but didn't want to ask directly whether this man had appeared to her mistress. So the prince just told his story. One day I was walking through the forest and I didn't have anywhere to sleep, so I found a tree and I got some leaves and I fell asleep and I woke up and and so forth and so on. Ah, said the servant, so the princess isn't crazy. She said this man appeared in her chamber, and she painted him, and she sent me out to try and find him, and here you are. She'll be so excited when I tell her. No, wait, please, said the prince. Don't tell her, not for a few days. I want to arrange things to make sure that she and I can be together. The prince turned away from the city. He headed back to the village where his Brahmin friend was. He found the Brahmin, and he said, hey, I need your help. I need to get into the palace, into the princess's chambers, and I need to marry her. And I've got a plan. All I need to do is dress up as a woman. 
The next day, two figures set out from the Brahmin's house. In front, the old Brahmin, dressed up in his finery, and behind him, the veiled figure of a woman. After a while, they came to the palace, and the Brahmin got an audience with the king. And he started to tell this sob story. He said, you know, after my wife gave birth to our daughter, she died. And I had to raise this daughter on my own. Here she is and she's wonderful. And in fact, I had managed to get a husband for her. Someone had promised to marry her. But he said first he had to go off to a jail to handle some business. But we've not heard of him since. It's been months now and I'm worried. I need to go to a jail and check whether he's still alive. I don't suppose I could leave my daughter with you. You would protect her, and she she wouldn't be any trouble. She could just sit in the princess's chamber. She could serve the princess. The king listened to the substory and, out of the kindness of his heart, agreed. He'd taken this Brahmin daughter, and she would just serve the princess for a few days while the Brahmin went off to find the man. So, the prince was in the palace, in the princess's quarters. And quickly he managed to see the princess reveal himself to her. And they engaged in what the text says was long intercourse, which I'm sure just means a series of conversations. So far, so good. But the prince and the princess were not yet married. Don't worry, said the prince. I've got a plan. The next day, the princess wanted to bathe in the river and she took all of her followers with her, including the new girl. The new girl waded a bit too far out into the river. Suddenly, she cried out. Her head dipped below the water, her hands flailed, and then she was gone, taken by the current. The princess was a little bit upset, but not too much. I mean, it was just some village girl who was visiting for a few days. The body was never found. And that's because the body was crawling out in some thick reeds downstream. The next day, the Brahmin came back into town. And behind him, he carried a figure of a man, finely dressed, an upstanding gentleman. The Brahmin went in to see the king. He said, hey, this is my son-in-law. Can you see how wonderful he is, how courageous? Just look at his bearing. He knows so much. He's a knowledgeable chap and he's kind and he's a master of music, he's a wonderful, and so on and so on. So, here he is, this is the guy who's going to marry my daughter, just return my daughter to me and they can get married, thank you so much, king. The king had been silent up to this point, but now he opened his mouth. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. What? said the Brahmin. She's dead, said the king. Who? said the Brahmin. Your daughter, your daughter's dead. My daughter? The Brahmin started to wail, started to cry out, and his cry became louder and louder, and nothing would console him. Nothing the king said seemed to make him quieter. In fact, it made him wail all the louder. He offered him money, the Brahmin wailed louder. He offered him land, the Brahmin wailed louder. Oh, fine, he said. This chap you say is a wonderful guy. Why don't, why don't, why doesn't he marry my daughter? Said the king. This at last consoled the Brahmin. And so the prince married the princess. 
Once the prince had finished telling this story to his fellow princes, the leader of the bunch made his opinion pretty clear. As the text says, You've done no deeds of blood, but have gained your ends by gentleness and ingenuity. This is the way approved of by the wise. In other words, sneaky stuff, that's the stuff heroes are made of. The stories that the other ten princes tell also get opinions, sometimes other opinions. For example, one prince seduces a queen to save his father, and the leader says, that's a great sin, but it's justified by the ends. That's also a great story full of cunning and folly, but that is for another time. Enough of romances, it's time to get serious. It's time to start planning the campaign. Harsha gathers his advisors, listening to each of them. And of course, the crooked war guys advise that he wage the campaign in crooked ways. The heroic war guys, say, wage it in honourable ways. But the new guys, the shining war guys, they don't give him any advice. Not at first. Instead, they ask questions. Harsha, are you overwhelmingly powerful? Do you have a much bigger army? Have you already managed to split away your enemy from his allies? Is it the right season? Are you fighting on the right soil? If yes to all of those questions, then by all means, go for the honourable way of fighting. March your army in the open right up to the enemy and take him down. But if you're not overwhelmingly powerful, then use tricks to get your way. All of the divisors pile on with considerations, things for Harsha to take account of. There are lots of them. First, what's the weather like? If there's no rain, and if it's not too hot, that's great, that's ideal, but it's not always so good. If it's summer, what you want to do is march your army as fast as you can into the woods, preferably woods with streams, because you're going to need cool and water for your elephants. Elephants consume about 200 litres per day, so 100 elephants get through an Olympic swimming pool in about 10 days. And Harsha apparently had thousands of elephants. So Harsha's not really going to understand the Olympic swimming pool measure, but you get the idea. Actually, elephants need water for more than just bathing, according to ancient Indians. They also need to douse themselves in it, otherwise their skin becomes leprous. And that's because there's this heat that grows inside an elephant when it's doing any work, even just light work. And that heat becomes a fire as they do more work, and that fire can make them blind and can finally kill them. So they need water just to cool that fire down. If it's the rainy season, well, then your elephants are fine. They're not going to burn up. But the infantry, the horses, the chariots, they're stuck in the mud, slow going. Not that you'll have many chariots, but more on that next episode. More than the weather, we have to think about the terrain. The terrain determines the war. Now, we've already said that if you've got elephants and you're marching in summer, you need to head straight for the forests. But at other times, try to go for the corn-growing regions in your enemy's land. That way, you get to destroy the corn, put your enemy king on the back foot, and take some supplies for yourself. Actually, talking of supplies, that's another thing to think about, Harsha. Even if you do manage to get corn in enemy territory, 
you're going to need to do an awful lot of work on logistics. In fact, this is probably the biggest responsibility you've got. Takes about one cart for each 20 foot soldiers, something like that by my calculations. So send out men in advance of the army, go to the villages and press the villages for food so that as you arrive, you can take some food. But that still won't be enough. You're still going to have to take most of your food with you in carts drawn by oxen. Or if you think you're going through some semi-arid desert, use camels. In fact, this advice of using camels is the first that we have in ancient India. And it appears in that book that arrives just after Harsha. And all of those animals eat. They eat a lot. There's a huge administration to feed the elephants alone. A hierarchy of people from lowly foragers to people roughing up local villages to overseers. And they bring thousands of tons of fodder into the elephant enclosures in camp every day. About 2,500 tons per day, according to my back-of-the-envelope calculation. And to give you that image, uh, that's about 2,500 pine trees worth of food per day. All of that, though, is very, very rough. As an ancient Indian king, a back-of-the-envelope calculation is not good enough. You need to get the details right. And there are a hundred other little important details we've left out. The number of horses for each archer. Elephant doctors, another whole administrative chain. Doctors for humans, the royal baggage, drink, including alcohol, the all-important treasury. The list goes on and Harsha would have been kept busy for weeks. Fortunately, this is a podcast, so we can skip ahead. And we're going to skip to the march. We're going to make sure... The march is in the right order, each of the parts of the army in the right place. And the right place depends, again, on the terrain. If you're heading into a forest or you're crossing a river, the elephants lead the way. They make new paths through the trees. They carry the goods across the river and establish a firm bridgehead. But in other terrain, at the very front of your army, get some people from the forest tribes. They're going to guide the way along with a few of your elite troops. In the centre, there's the king and the commander-in-chief, or the chief general. To the side of them, horses. To the side of them, elephants. And at the very fringes, more people from the forest tribes. Not the best troops, but the first to get killed, and their killing will serve as a warning to the rest of the army. In this layout, you're ready to deploy into a number of different battle formations very quickly. So if someone surprises you, you can be ready to fight. The sick and the wounded... They are with a baggage train behind the king. Then horses should be running here and there, giving messages and scouting the outer regions. March by night, rest by day, especially in the heat of summer. Night marching was strictly against the rules of the heroic war supporters, but it seems to have been common enough, and Harsha himself had torchbearers and torches to make sure that marching at night was reasonably practical. Most of all, though, in the march, make sure you're slow. Men get tired when they're not in their home country. And you want them rested and ready to fight. That's going to be crucial. You can hear in this advice the complaints of old soldiers. When the march is done and you finally come to the enemy town, make a camp. And when you make a camp, make sure it's on good ground, firm, 
with good avenues of escape. Do not choose a bad campsite. Even if starting out from that campsite the next day would get you victory, you can't start out the next day if you've been killed the night before. The camp should be good. Construct it in a square fashion. There should be four gates, one on each side, each of them guarded by elite troops. The gates marked by flags and decorated by garlands of flowers. The flowers are not a strict military necessity, I think. Around the wall, you should dig a ditch. And within the wall, there should be four highways running around the edge of the camp. Inside that, the tents. Tents can be square or circular or crescent or rectangular, whatever you need. We don't need to go for a Roman-style neatness here. But the tents should be organised in a certain fashion. The tents around the edge, in them, you should have the forest tribesmen, the cheapest troops. And then inside of them, you should have the troops who once fought for the enemy and now are on your side. Still a little bit untrustworthy. Inside them, you should have soldiers from your allies, and then your own army, your rank and file, and then close to the very centre, your full-time permanent army, the hereditary troops, the veterans. Finally, in the centre, your tent, the king's own tent, the king's elephant waiting outside. Now, the king's tent is a pretty sacred place in a certain way. No soldiers are allowed inside. Inside are secret chambers hidden away behind the folds, and the all-important treasury. The king's there too. And as king, you should be armed at all times in camp. Even when you sleep, your sword should be right by your side. That's the structure inside the camp. Pretty straightforward. Outside the camp, lay traps. Put down thorns or iron caltrops. Dig holes and cover them over so that people's feet go straight in. And hire some hunters some vicious hunters, and pay them well, and get them to stay there outside the camp all night, waiting and watching. And keep part of your army up inside the camp too, rushing around, moving around within the camp, waiting for some trickery. Finally, you've made camp. You've waited, it's morning, it's time to engage the enemy. Now, the older advice was to split the army up. That's the advice in the law books. That's the advice that the heroic war supporters might give you. The main general, the commander-in-chief, will go off with a strike force rapidly moving towards the enemy, whilst the king goes with the rest of the army to make sure the camp is secure. That's the idea. Not quite the thought of heroism you might have elsewhere in history. The new advice, the advice of the Shining War chaps, is a little bit similar in a way. They also suggest that you split the force, but only under the circumstances that the heroic war guys would strongly disapprove of. If your spies come to you and they say that the enemy camp is there, wait for nightfall. Take a quarter of your army, the ones most experienced in fighting at night. That's crucial. The king goes, the commander-in-chief goes too, and then at night you attack. Or, if you spotted the enemy a ways off in the day, follow them, shadow them with your strike force. Wait until they put up their tents. And if they put their tents up on a bad spot, bad soggy ground where there's no retreat, whilst they're putting up their tents, filling with their tent poles, charge in and slaughter them. Even better than having a strike force make a raid, go for assassination. 
or decapitation as we've started to call it for some reason. Wait for the king to be on his own, hunting perhaps, then send some forest tribe or secret agents and have him cut down. Do everything you can to avoid battle until you are absolutely certain of victory. All of this advice was floating around during Harsha's time. Much of it he would have heard. But still, Harsha found himself often taking his army into a pitched battle. And as he walked around his camp, making sure his troops were ready, his advisors would have had lots to say about how to line them up, where to put your elephants, what to do with them, the finer points of managing cavalry, and a hundred cunning tricks on how to win a pitched battle. That's a story, though, for the next episode. Every week we read something from the original sources. This week we're going to read from that newfangled book we've been talking about, The Nitisara. I said it was written about 50 years after Harsha. That's my best guess, and I think it's about the mean of what historians think nowadays. But there's still debate over which century it was written in, so your guess is as good as mine. Now, historians have somewhat overlooked The Nitisara. And partly that's because people think of it as just a repeat. Quite a few of the sections are from that much older book written by the chap we've been called Crookedness, also called Chanakya, the Arta Shastra. And people kind of dismiss the new book as just the same old, same old. The old book, the Arta Shastra, that's everywhere. Not just in history, but also in the public mind. So I was in a bookshop in India just the other day, and there were dozens of books, it seemed, on Chanakya, on the Arta Shastra. There was a book called Chanakya in Daily Life, Applying Crooked War to Your Everyday Dealings. Slightly worrying, perhaps. There was another book called Corporate Chanakya. More predictable, but still worrying. Chanakya Niti. Chanakya Cooks for You. Actually, I think the last one's wrong, but anyway... Chinookia and the old book, Crookedness, that's extremely popular. But I've never been in a bookstore and seen a book on the Nitisara, or the author of the Nitisara, Kamandaki. In fact, I'm not even sure that a book exists anywhere on Kamandaki. Anyway, now you've listened to this episode, you know that Kamandaki isn't just a copy of the old ideas. There are new and important ideas coming to the fore during Harsha's time. And we're going to read some of them. The section we're going to read is a section which is trying to persuade kings that it's noble and right to not go to war, but to try and win using other means, even using bribery. The section goes like this. Possessed of a keen intelligence and armed with manliness and a favourable fortune, a monarch with proper endeavours and perseverance, should bring to bear against the enemy the expedients for subjugating them. Solvent treasury and a good council fight better than an army consisting of the four kinds of forces, infantry, elephant, chariots, horsemen. Therefore, a king of sound political knowledge should conquer his enemies by the power of council and treasures. Conciliation, bribery, display of military power, domestic discord, these four, and deceit, neglect, and conjuring, these seven 
are said to be the means of success against an enemy. And then the Nitisara goes on to talk about each of those ideas in turn and to try and justify them. Dunder, the infliction of punishment, is said to be of two kinds, open and secret. Enemies of the state and those who are disliked by the people should be openly dealt with. But those who cause anxiety to the people, those who are the king's favourites, and those who stand very much in the way of material prosperity of the state, should be dealt with secretly, by poisoning, by the help of mystical ceremonies, by assassination and by throwing down. By these methods, secret punishment should be so meted out that nobody could come to know of them. On Brahmanas, or any other caste, on pious people, and on low and mean classes of men, an intelligent king should not, for the advancement of his material spiritual welfare, inflict capital punishment. Those against whom secret punishment is recommended can also be done away with by neglect, but a prudent person should avoid showing this neglect outwardly. Skip ahead to talking about conciliation. Thoroughly scanning, reviewing and studying their hearts, and speaking sweet words and thereby appearing to be shedding nectar, a king should employ conciliation as an expedient against the foe. Sweet and mellifluous speech is said to be conciliation itself. Eulogium, truth, sweet speech, these are synonymous with conciliation. Appearing to view the undertaking of the enemy in the light of his own, a king should enter into his heart, penetrate him, unperceived like water penetrating into the mountain. The immortals and the nirvanas succeeded in churning the ocean of milk and obtained desirable results only through conciliation. Skip to bribery. An intelligent and wise king should pacify a threatening foe by means of bribery. When intent on ruining Indra, Sukra was pacified through gift. So one desirous of peace should, even approaching the powerful king uninvited, give away things to him for pleasing him sons of Kandhari, refusing to give, met with their complete destruction. The policy of conciliation, without the support of the policy of bribery, seldom brings success. In fact, conciliation without the help of bribery cannot produce the desired effect even when it is employed against one's own wife. These expedients, a king conversant with the science of polity, should skillfully bring to bear against the enemy's troops or his own forces. A king exerting without employing these expedients proceeds towards his end like a blind man. Thank you very much indeed for listening. That's not really it actually, because next week we're going to pick up where we left off, we're going to be moving away from the advisors, we're going to be following harsher as he reviews his troops and gets ready for battle. I hope you've been enjoying the podcast. If you have, please consider donating to my wife's charity, the Snehal Sidhu Memorial Fund. Details are on the website. There's a link in the description. Have a great week. Take care.